Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network and MIMO. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi guys, welcome back to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, hosted by yours truly, Christine Kim and Consensus's Ben Edgington. Hi everyone, Ben here. Uh, Christine and I will be going through your weekly roundup of markets, tech, and community-related news about Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0. But first, Christine, your factoid of the week. Uh, when we t talk about gas prices in Ethereum, we often use GUI, which means gigaway, which is a billion way. But did you know that the original name for a GUI was a Shannon? Why Shannon? Who the heck is Shannon? <laughs> Shannon is uh, Claude Shannon, who is the pioneer of information theory. For some reason, that gigaway, that billion-way value was originally named a Shannon. And, you know, they've all got names. I mean, I was looking this up earlier, and it's uh, kind of interesting to see this stuff that the, uh, the developers originally envisaged, but we're just not using today. So Way, we know, this is Way Dai who was working in sort of electronic cash before uh, blockchains came along. And then you've got Babbage is a thousand way for Charles Babbage, obviously. And then a million way is a Lovelace, which is Ada Lovelace, the, uh, but possibly the first ever computer programmer. And uh, we've done billion way, which is Shannon. And then a thousand Shannon is a Sabo for Nick Sabo, who's a computer scientist and involved in digital contracts, smart contracts pioneer. And then a thousand Sabos are Finney, named for Hal Finney, a very early Bitcoin pioneer. So <laughs> were you aware of all that or is that all completely new to you? Wow, that's incredible. So all of the units of micro Ethereum Ether, they're named after those units of account, they're named mm. after famous computer programmers? Yeah, computer scientists or pioneers in, in the field. I kind of feel it's a shame that it, they're falling out of use, but they're a bit clumsy. I mean, having to remember like six different names for different things, you know, is a Phineas thousandth of an ether or a millionth. It's kind of hard to remember, right? So I guess, you know, they were never really going to fly. Yeah. So. Very fun fact. The naming was not very practical, but it is a fun fact. It's an interesting little tidbit of information. And I must say, so these people, you know, going down the list of very famous individuals in the computer science, computer programming world, I'm excited to say that we have a very famous individual in the crypto market space for today's market segment. We're very happy to introduce to the show senior markets reporter at Coindesk, Amkar Godbole. Amkar, welcome to the show. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Hello, Ben. Let's talk a little bit deeper into trading strategies that we're seeing in this crypto bull run, which has now turned into a bear market, but you know, we're going to brush over that point. <laughs> we're going to talk about how one Ether options trader lost slash potentially made $3 million in a single trade. Amkar, so you've been reporting since, since 2017, correct? Yeah, September 2017. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so in this story, the trader on crypto exchange Deribit he or she, I should say, 
took a large bet against a sharp drop in Ether price. So basically they're betting that the ETH price is going to continue to go up, but ended up with a massive loss on Tuesday, June 22nd, as ETH tanked to a three-month low of $1,700. And the calculated loss that you had mentioned in this article, which we'll put in today's show notes, you had calculated that the loss was around $3 million. And then in an update to that story, Amgar, you had wrote that the trader who took on that loss was probably a market maker who was completely hedged. Can you explain how they might have hedged themselves from that loss of $3 million? Yeah, so uh, first thing that uh, I should mention is with derivatives, uh, with the futures and options, there, there are data limitations. So when you look at open interest, uh, it doesn't really tell you whether the number of open positions that we are seeing, these are on the long side or on the short side. So it's, it's mostly a matter of judgment and you know exchanges really do not uh, comment on who's, who's the party of the trade. Usually they leave it to you know, analysts. So on uh, June 22, when Ether dipped, a couple of data tracking platforms, they sent me a message saying a large position has essentially puked. So you know somebody panicked and uh, squared off his position. Usually when institutions trade in large quantities, just as is this case, where uh, 5,000 contracts were squared off, the information that I got from Genesis Volatility is uh, that this is probably an individual trader or maybe a retail investor who, who sold an insurance, essentially. When you, when you sell a put option, it's like you're selling an insurance against a bearish move. And he took that bet uh, in, I think, somewhere sometime between April to uh, mid-May when Ether was rallying. And now that uh, on June 22, when Ether crashed, you know he had to square it off in loss because obviously when markets go down, the cost of put options rises. So he, he booked the loss and originally, you know, we, we thought the circumstantial evidence said that this is a retail investor who booked a 3 million loss. But on the other side, they had market makers. So market makers are direction neutral. Their, port, their book, as they say, is always market neutral. It doesn't matter whether market goes up or goes down because uh, they profit from the spread between bid and ask prices and they get commission for providing liquidity so so uh, you know if i if i put a large trade order there let's say if i want to buy a 10000 ether call option a market maker might step in and provide me the liquidity you know when when he takes a short position obviously he is exposed to taking a risk that market might rally hard and i might uh, you know claim my insurance in which case he'll have to uh, pay me so this trader wasn't actually making a bet on, you know, the Ether price is going to stay super high because it was a market maker. Their main intention from, you know, the evidence that you've gathered, the kind of comments you've received from Deribit is that he or she was actually injecting liquidity into the market by creating a market for people to make these bets on, on Ether price. And at the same time, by providing liquidity for the trades of, you know, ETH price is going to go up. That's obviously other people are betting that ETH prices are going to go down. By creating that dynamic, they, they obviously had some other kind of insurance on either the same market or like in a different market to hedge their losses, to call in as insurance. So while making these bets that ETH price is going to go up, they also had an equal same amount of bet that ETH price is going to go down. Thus, they have a lot of liquidity to inject into both markets and they're doing that so that they don't lose any money, um, but they're yeah. still making kind of like a little bit of a profit still by being a market maker. 
I hope I said that right. Is that is that yeah, right, yeah. Amkar? Yeah, that, that's what the whole picture is. You know, when when markets are in a strong bull run, uh, people take uh, uh, you know risky bets, and some retail investor might have you know written or sold put option while Ether was rallying. But in this case, as as we just discussed, it was kind of surprising that when market was trending, the momentum was quite strong. And I must appreciate the trader that he had a foresight to buy a put option. And I think when when he put an order for uh, you know, buying a put option, a, li- a liquidity provider stepped in and offered uh, to sell. And at the same yeah. time, because he sold the put option, obviously a, a liquidity provider was you know taking a risk that if market crashes, he would suffer a loss. So. He must have hesitated by selling Ether futures or selling Ether Ether in the spot market. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't want to deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one Europeg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio, open a vault, and access the power of blockchain through MIMO protocol today at MIMO.capital. That's MIMO, M-I-M-O, dot capital. It's interesting that there's such big players in the Ethereum trading space now, these market makers, um, whereas back in 2017, I don't know if there were as many individuals, businesses that would have been able to really match those kinds of risky bets and just be able to increase the risk of the market in such a big way. Hey, Omkar, it's um, good to learn a little bit uh, about all of this for me. I'm deep in the technical weeds of the protocol and things and uh, rarely look into these price and uh, market-related activities. So this is really fascinating. It strikes me as being quite complicated. You know, there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. What are the information sources and what are the metrics that you are using to understand and to analyze what's happening in the market and, and, and where it might be going? And when it comes to our derivatives, uh, I'm looking at how the options are priced, first of all. So you can look at uh, a metric called as uh, put call skew, which is essentially, it, it measures how uh, the prices of puts relative to calls. So if you have a consistent, let's say, uh, the put call skews are consistently positive, it means uh, investors are still worried about uh, potential uh, sell-off and they're taking hedges. So they're essentially... Uh, buying puts or you know, to, to simplify it even further, demand for put options is greater than demand for calls. So it's a sign that people are taking hedges. And uh, since May, that has been the case. Like uh, You must have heard the narrative that market has stabilized now with Bitcoin around 30,000, etc. But uh, if you look at the options market, there is still a considerable fear in both the Ether as well as Bitcoin options market where put options are drawing uh, more demand or higher prices than calls. And then we also look at... Uh, I mean, I, I know traders who, who track a put-call ratio 
which is the number of ports open relative to calls. So even that will give you some hints. It's not a reliable indicator because uh, when when you talk about open positions, you really don't know whether these are uh, uh, these open positions are on the buy side or the sell side. But if you track the ratio consistently, you know it kind of gives you a picture whether bullish sentiment in the market or uh, bearish sentiment. The most important example that comes to my mind right now is uh, about uh, CME futures open interest. So when Bitcoin began rallying in October 2020, I think CME was was the sixth largest uh, exchange as per open interest. By the time Bitcoin reached to 30,000 or 40,000, I think uh, CME was the number one exchange. So you know what this tells us is that the narrative that institutions are driving prices higher is correct because institutions predominantly trade on CME. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, Amkar. This was really informational for both Ben and I who don't have as much market knowledge as you do and understanding some of these trading, hedging strategies, what metrics that you as a senior markets reporter are looking at on the day-to-day to track these price trends, track the market sentiment. Thank you so much, Amkar. We hope to have you back again on the show soon. Thanks. Thanks. Let's move on to our tech piece for the week. And I have a random topic for you this time. In fact, I want to talk a little bit about randomness. Uh, Did you know that Zelda, that's the Coindesk validator, Zelda went through the whole of April and May, 63 days, without being selected to propose a single block? It's actually so sad because that's where our most of our rewards come from. Like when you propose a block, you get way higher rewards than if you just do the normal attestation. So the fact that we haven't been selected, randomly selected for a block kills me. It hurts my soul. (laughs) It's not so bad just yet. Only 3% of rewards for validators come with block proposals, but it's uh, that is set to increase. So when we do this Altair fork in a few weeks time, that will go to 12% of rewards. And then, of course, after the merge, you end up getting transaction fees as well. So proposing blocks becomes a big deal. But block proposals are not evenly distributed. I often see on uh, Eastaker Reddit, for example, or on our support uh, channels, people put up a validator and it goes for a month without making any block proposals. And they're like, well, well, what's wrong? What have I done wrong? You know, is your product broken? The fact is, it's just randomness. The protocol decides, picks, selects proposers, validators from the whole pool, which is 180,000. So every 12 seconds, you've got a one in 180,000 chance of being selected to uh, be the proposer of the block. So it's like a lottery. So I actually looked at some of our, our techu staking nodes that we manage as a dev team. All the validators have been active since Genesis, which was eight months ago for the beacon chain. And the one that had the most block proposals had been chosen 34 times. And the one with the least, only 10 times <laughs> to, to propose blocks, um, which is quite a big disparity. I mean, it's like, you know, more than three times um, more for the highest, the luckiest than the unluckiest. I understand the, the randomness, but I guess the randomness doesn't actually equate to equality. So when you roll a dice and then you roll it like, I don't know, a hundred times, there's like a 25% chance that you're going to, if the dice only has four sides, let's say you roll it a hundred times, then like you would expect that with the hundred times that you roll, you know, 25% of them, there's like an equal, the outcome is that like each side gets hit on like 25% of the time. 
But I think because of the fact that the randomness in Ethereum 2.0, it's so spread out between 180,000 validators, you've, you need to have gone through maybe like a million block proposals to start to see some kind of equality across every single mm -hmm. individual validator. Not that I want to introduce more protocol level changes because you know how much I hate those <laughs> from last week's episode. What if the protocol wasn't so much random, but more so like equal as in it mm. tries to keep all the block proposals for each validator equal? I don't know if that messes up kind of the colluding protections of the network, but I'm worried about Zelda. I'm worried that we're not going <laughs> to get a lot of block. Yeah, in the long run, you're, you're right. You should revert to the mean and you should on average, get a similar number of proposals to everyone else, which is about one every 25 days at the moment. But there will be outliers, there will be validators, which are super unlucky, and there will be validators that are super, super lucky. And the same thing happens in proof of work mining. So this is one reason why mining pools exist, is because people don't want to have a chance of having one big payout every year, they want to have a small payout every day. And then they spread the rewards from the blocks across all of the participants in the mining pool, which is kind of what you're suggesting, I think, something like that. Uh, my worry is it's a centralizing force, right? Because if you are participating or big players, people with a lot of validators, their luck will average out much better than uh, you or me with our one or two validators. So they end up getting much nearer the average amount than you or I might. So... Uh, it is a centralizing force. We can't really do anything about it with respect to block proposals, but we are looking at it with respect to some other stuff in the protocol. And it gets a little bit techy here, but we have a new thing coming along with Altair, which is uh, the upgrade we're doing in a few weeks to the beacon chain, which is called Sync Committees, which are designed to help light clients sync up very quickly to the um, head of the chain. And these sync committees, you're selected very rarely, just every few months, you might participate in the sync committee and you get rewards for doing so. And the problem with that is you got this randomness thing again. Some will be selected more than others and we'll get more rewards and so on, so on, which is, again, this centralizing pressure. So we actually made a change to the protocol and basically increased everybody's rewards all the time slightly. And then when you're in a sync committee, instead of getting a reward, if you don't show up to do your job, you get a penalty. And what that means is that if everybody does their job all the time, everybody gets the same reward. And so it's completely even. But when you don't show up, you are penalized if you don't do your job. If you're in the sync committee and you're not making the, uh, the signatures you're supposed to, uh, which is quite an interesting approach to it. And that's, uh, I think, will be effective at sort of smoothing out this variance in, in rewards people see. But I, I don't think we can do the same with block proposals. It's a, it's a different category of, of, of problem on that. Yeah, I think anytime financial incentives come into play, anytime you are competing for profits, it becomes extremely competitive, extremely focused on how do I maximize rewards by keeping my operational costs as low as possible. And that's definitely shaped Bitcoin's mining industry and, and really accelerated development into the ASIC space. And I think it is a very big challenge to try and dissuade staking pools from really becoming the primary way to, to maximize your earnings as a validator. I think it does come down to a, a bit of altruistic motivation to want to contribute to the decentralization of the network as opposed to just seeking profits, which 
I don't know how many people, um, I have a very cynical view on like the altruism of people. <laughs> well, there is a sense in which if you are staking with a hosting provider, they're taking a cut, right? They're taking a, a slice of the stake. So I did the math and it makes sense for me as a solo validator to do that because the middleman isn't taking a cut on that. So it, it works both ways. Ben, one thing that I want to follow up on, you had said that the Altair upgrade, the, the first backwards incompatible upgrade for the Ethereum 2.0 beacon chain, that's coming in a couple of weeks. Does this mean that it might come around the same time as the London upgrade for the Ethereum proof of work network? I know the goal was to make it so that users only have to upgrade their, uh, validators only have to upgrade their Ethereum 2.0 node and then their Ethereum node once instead of on two separate occasions. But I wasn't aware that you guys were so far along in the development process. Is it really ready to, you think it's going to be ready to go in just a few weeks? A few weeks. Yeah, not two weeks. We're looking at some point, maybe mid-August. Uh, so the plan is to fork the test nets. So we'll start with the Piermont test net, which has been around quite a long time. And we're looking at doing that in three to four weeks time. So before the end of July. Assuming that goes well, we will then set a date to fork the other testnet and the, the main beacon chain during August. So yeah, it's coming. It's so when is London fork going to happen on ETH1? That I think will be decided next week or it will be tomorrow by the time this goes out at <laughs> the All Core Devs meeting. And that's likely to be at the very end of July or the very beginning of August. So they'll be within a few weeks of each other, but not totally at the same time. Interesting. Okay, gotcha. Well, I mean, I feel like we are ready now for our last segment of the show. I wanted to talk a little bit for our community segment, a group of people in the Ethereum ecosystem that have a very strange name, <laughs> but do a lot for the ecosystem. <laughs> They're called the Ethereum Cat Herders, and they are a relatively new group of people on Ethereum. They started back in January 2019. And they're basically a bunch of project managers. They're these people that try and help coordinate Ethereum improvements proposals. So anytime that people have an idea for how to make Ethereum better, they try and help coordinate the governance process of getting those EIPs reviewed. They try and help communication with different stakeholders of the network. They'll reach out to miners on Ethereum. They'll reach out to wallets on Ethereum, decentralized application developers to talk through upcoming upgrades to talk through various EIPs. They host a bunch of informational sessions, I believe. Ben, you know more about, about this than I do. They host these information sessions, I believe, on YouTube. Ethereum, educating people about Ethereum. Yeah, this is called Peep and Eep, which is, <laughs> which is designed to educate people on upcoming changes to the Ethereum network, EIPs, EEPs, as they're sometimes called. Ethereum improvement proposals. So the cat herders have done a, a bunch of sessions recently on different proposed upgrades. They did a lot on EIP 1559 uh, and various other things. The current one, which was done last week or two weeks ago, was my colleague Adrian Sutton talking about the work we've done in Teku for Altair for the upgrade and how we implemented that. And uh, hot news, I'm recording a funny one with them next week, uh, which is called A Brief History of Ethereum's Future. Uh, that's coming. Uh, <laughs> that's coming at you next week. Yeah, so that's moving away a bit from the technical EIP stuff, but they're, they're good sessions. 
That's awesome. Everyone who's listening to the podcast, we should all go support Ben by tuning in to his special, A Short History of Ethereum. That's wonderful. How well known would you say, Ben, that the Ethereum cat herders are in the Ethereum community? And how big of a role would you say they play in in moving decentralized governance along? Because when they first started, I think there were some concerns over this group of people might take over and centralize the process of governance too much. But so far, in in my opinion, they've been bringing so much value in terms of like educating the public, in terms of bringing different stakeholders of the network together, really a group of individuals, not really just one company or, or one entity like the Ethereum Foundation. They're just a group of volunteers. Literally anyone can join the Ethereum cat herders and they're just a group of people who has a bunch of spare time to, to do all of these things. Well, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on them so far, Ben? I think this is one of the, the most charming things about the Ethereum uh, world, the Ethereum community, which just excites me so much, is the fact that anybody can get involved and just come along and do something useful. And in the early years, it was mostly techie stuff, right? And we were you know, working on specs or smart contracts or, or code or, or whatever. But there is so much opportunity for people to bring their skills and just pitch in and help out. I, I, I love this initiative. I, I've got a feeling it really began around DEFCON 4 in Prague. The, the sort of initial conversations around this happened and it kind of low level and in the background. And they're not prominent in the Ethereum protocol world. But when you start looking, they, they are everywhere. And, you know, they're writing meeting notes, they're coordinating meetings and uh, working groups. They're doing educational stuff, you know, managing the admin around the IPs and this kind of thing. It's super helpful to have this, uh, this coordination layer, this project management layer. As for centralizing, I mean, they're not decision makers. I mean, these, they're very careful not to take control of anything or become a focal point for anything. Uh, they're not seeking to take power in any way. And it's just a really useful resource for uh, the Ethereum community, especially the kind of protocol community. So yeah, I, I've become a big fan. Yeah, I didn't realize exactly how much Ethereum did need a coordination layer like what the Ethereum cat herders, the function that they perform. When I started reporting on Ethereum in 2018, there wasn't a dedicated group of individuals whose primary focus was simply moving things along in the governance process. Not like you said, not making decisions, but just bringing people together to like talk about things and to get all perspectives. So that kind of role that they've grown into, I think has been having a very positive effect, especially around EIP-1559. I think the kind of information campaign that they did was, was very much needed. And I guess the other thing too about the Ethereum cat herders is when you were talking about how they started, one of the key people of the group, I can't help but think about is, is Hudson Jameson the person before Tim Baiko, who was chairing the bi-weekly Ethereum protocol developer meetings on YouTube. And I believe it was either him or maybe it was somebody else who said the reason why we're called the Ethereum cat herders is because coordinating governance on Ethereum is like trying to herd cats and cats are notoriously very difficult to control. Like dogs, you can maybe train them to, to listen to a few commands, but with cats, it's like hard to bring all the cats together. Yeah, exactly right. And that's often uh, to be one of the challenges of governance is just 
getting people uh, on the same page in the same room, not, <laughs> not just straying off doing their own thing. Yeah, and they do a great job. The other thing that they're very useful to have available for is if there's an emergency, if you know there were to be a chain split or something, they have curated contacts with exchanges, mining pools, and so forth. So they can very quickly get into contact with uh, significant parts of the ecosystem in order to you know coordinate responses if there's a security incident or something like that, which is a super important role. Very cool. Yeah, well, we hope you learned something new about the Ethereum ecosystem today. If you have never heard of the Ethereum cat herders, please go check them out. We're going to have their group link in the show notes today. And if anything, I actually think we spent a lot of our, our show talking about very cool, interesting naming conventions <laughs> for Ethereum. So the more you know. That's it for the show today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Please be sure to join us again next week for another weekly roundup of your markets, tech, and community news. And I will say right now, we could have another special guest on the show. We're gonna keep you on your toes. So tune in again. And if you have any questions you would like answered on today's podcast, you can connect with Ben and I on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. We both write newsletters. I write every week, What's New in ETH2, which you can find at ETH2.news or follow me on Twitter. And I'll let you know when the next one is out. And Christine's newsletter is called Valid Points and comes out every Wednesday at coindesk.com. See you all next week for mapping out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it is meant to be. Bye. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington with guest Omkar Gobale. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. 